Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for coming back and tuning in. This is episode 224, and today's guest name is Saad Juman. Saad started, grew, and sold a multinational business that was doing nine figures when he exited the company. And Policy Medical developed numerous hospital data management systems that was trusted by over 3,000 healthcare organizations. And before starting Policy Medical, Saad ran a successful nightclub in Toronto that survived the underground criminal element in the area including his own experience of having a gun drawn on him one night in the club. He called this time in his life the dark time or the pit. And after that traumatic experience, Saad decided to own his exit. And what he meant by that was that you should proactively change your circumstance before some major event changes it for you. Another word for that is intentional. But in order to be intentional, you have to truly understand what you want and why in order to reverse engineer the plan to go get it. I broke this episode into two parts because I wanted to spend time on the backstory about Saad, how he got himself into that deep, dark area called the pit, what he did to clarify his why. So this first episode is the background story, how he figured out truly what he wanted and how he was going to go make that impact and build a business around it. And then the second part is going to be talking about how he took his strategic plan to grow a company that satisfies his personal why to make an impact in people's life and the healthcare industry. And the reason that this is an important two-part series and why we're going to be spending time understanding Saad's why is because I want you to start really thinking about it because over the years, not only in this podcast, but also in all my coaching sessions lately and all the different experiences that I've had, the regrets come from people not knowing what they wanted and why. They only focused on the numbers of the revenue while they had the business or their net income. Then they got you know, infatuated with selling, ringing the cash register, or maximizing their purchase price, having no idea that they had a bigger relationship with their business as it related to their identity or other intangibles that they wanted, and they didn't quantify those or identify those until after the sale. So today is about understanding the background story of an entrepreneur that grew and sold a successful company, but the background story is unbelievably important to understand because it gives context around the decisions that were made, not only in the strategic planning and growing of the business, but the eventual sale. So Saad's going to be talking about that in great detail in his nightclub experience, but then how he got the clarity. And I want you to take some things away from that because you can do that right now without having a major life-changing event. That's why we call this owning your exit and identifying your personal why because you don't have to have an out-of-the-blue-off or a life-traumatic experience to get clear on this. It just takes time to listen and to think. Don't worry. In the next episode, part two, we're going to be talking about all the tactical things that Saw did to grow a more valuable business and a scale and scale a company that made the impact to his customers, to his wallet, and to all the other things that he deemed important, but he kept his why in focus so that way all the decisions he was making in the business aligned with that ultimate goal. If there's one favor I would ask is if you have a topic or you have a guest that you want me to interview or a topic you want me to dive further into, feel free and I'm saying not just feel free, but please email me at rtansom at arcona.io. I've got thousands of downloads every single week. We're really doing a lot of good work with this podcast. We've got some amazing listeners. I appreciate you tuning in, and I want to provide more value. And it's a lot of work making sure that I've constantly got a, a guest each week. So if you have topics or people that you want me to interview that you think would be interesting and interesting for the other people that are tuning in, reach out to rtansomanarcona.io and let me know what you're thinking. So without further ado, this is Sajuman, and we're going to be talking about how to own your exit and get clear and crazy focus on your why to reinvigorate that fire underneath you so you can wake up and passionately be marching towards your goals. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income 
to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning. Well, it's morning for us. How's it going, Saad? Good morning. It's going great. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, I had saw you spoke in uh, our Rhodium weekend, uh, Rhodium Remote 2020 with Chris Yates, who pulled it off. <laughs> and uh, I uh, listened to your story, and I know there was a you know very tactical approach of uh, how you had bought, you know, started, grown, sold the business. And, you know, there's some other versions of the story that I think we'll be able to dive into. I'm just very impressed. So I'm just on like some of the things that you did to get clear on what was important to you. I talk a lot about that on the show while also succeeding in business. And I think keeping those things in balance is really, really hard. <laughs> and so um, I'm excited to hear about some of the, the trials and tribulations and successes along the way. But for the listeners that might not be familiar with you and kind of the, the things that you've done, maybe kind of give us a, you know, the quick little version of how you got to where you are today. And then we can unpack some of the, the color behind it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so I'm I'm born and raised in Toronto, uh, Ontario, Canada, and I was I was brought up here, um, one of five kids in a single parent household. Uh, grew up in a very conservative family. Uh, there was always some entrepreneurial elements within our family, maybe like 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 most families, uh, and I think I latched on to those growing up, uh, looking at those examples, and then throughout my young adult to adult life, um, there's always been an entrepreneurial theme in me trying some business or, or another, some idea or another, and and developing them as I got uh, older and older. So these days, I guess you could put me in the box of a tech or healthcare technology entrepreneur. Um, I'm a post-exit founder, uh, trying to find my way uh, into the next chapter of my life. <laughs> and uh you were on Sherry Walling's podcast talking about some of that. And, uh, you know, the, I don't know if you and I had talked, but uh, the podcast title used to be called Life After Business four and a half years ago when I started it because it was a lot about like, what the heck do you do <laughs> after you sell and what's the, the whole point? Oh, really? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of different areas that we can dive into. And so, like, you know, it's interesting. So when I started the show, I used to say, Hey, so tell me how you became an entrepreneur. You know, why'd you do it? And the amount of people that said I accidentally did it was, it was such a, like a huge proportion of the people. So I don't answer, I don't ask the question like that. So how did you, you know, you said that your, your family had some ties to it, but how did you finally dive into the, the deep end of the pool? Yeah, great, great question. I think if I, if I had to find one moment in my life where I consciously was made aware of an entrepreneurial path as something that would resonate with me. It was probably around the age of 12. Um, I was a very passionate basketball player when I was, when I was younger. And at the age of 12, I was, my skills were good enough to earn me a spot on the outdoor courts in the neighborhoods that, that I was growing up with, which were which were the rougher neighborhoods in, in Toronto. And I would, that was my first passion, but I loved organized basketball. And the neighborhood that I was growing up in, uh, for some reason or another, uh, the leagues that we all used to play organized basketball in got, got shut down. Like they were, they were no longer available. And my mom came to me and challenged me with the idea of trying to figure something out on my own to keep organized basketball going in my life. And that led to really her guiding me to start a basketball league for myself and my friends. Uh, and we were, you know, I was 12 years old going on to 13 and, and also a younger league for my younger brother that ended up lasting for five years. There were hundreds of kids that passed through that league. You know, I was both player and coach. I learned about hiring people. I learned about employing my friends. I learned about what it's like in terms of my friend's work ethic when they were volunteering for free for the first <laughs> few months in the first year. And they were showing up late on a Saturday morning to coach the younger kids. And then what it was like to pay them $10 a game. And all of a sudden they were miraculously showing up on time and they had game plans for the younger kids <laughs> and everything else. 
And, you know, I mean, she even taught me, we had a, you know, Toronto and Canada specifically, it has a long, beautiful history of welcoming new immigrants into the country. So in Toronto, there were several waves of new immigrants coming from different countries. And we had showing up to the league kids that were from new immigrant families that they could play basketball. Like they could, as we would say, they could hoop. Um, however, they didn't have the means or the money to pay for the league. So I remember my mom challenging me with ways of funding these kids. Right. And, you know, at 12, 13 years old, I started pitching for corporate sponsorships and all sorts of stuff. So these kids can play basketball. So that, that era of my life, long way to answer is, is what turned on the entrepreneurial light bulb for me. Um, and whatever I learned in those five years, I've pretty much replicated the same way, just in different arenas uh, for the rest of my career so far. I mean, that is a unique uh, take um, when everybody says, oh, sports are so good for your kids because they learn leadership and teamwork. Not only did you play sports, but you actually organized a league. <laughs> so <laughs> you took that whole concept to a whole different level. I love it. <laughs> and it, I think there, you know, based on some of the things that I you just said, I think there's going to be some themes that I'm already recognizing of what you learned then that what you're applying to the things that you're doing today. Um, so, you know, you and I had chatted um, prior to this call, you know, you had given a very technical, like, you know, growth and exit story on the Rhodium uh, community uh, presentation. I think there's going to be a lot of good takeaways, too. But there was also some very personal things that were going on along, you know, along and uh, that predated some of the entrepreneurial stuff. So maybe, you can, you know, whatever you feel comfortable diving into of how you got to the point where, I mean, you know, you, you see it and maybe kind of given an overview of the, the company that you did grow and sell, kind of tying some of these big themes together and we can dive into whatever areas that you want. I think it's just, you know, some very um, interesting combination of events uh, that got you to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, with, with an event like, like Rhodium, the focus definitely was on the tactical growth strategies for the tech company that I had. Um, and and that, that was really what I was asked to, to speak about. Um, that, that company, if we kind of go in, in maybe reverse order, yeah, let's do that. that company spanned, uh, for 17 and a half years, at least under my, my leadership, it was in the healthcare technology space, primarily, uh, what the company did, it was called policy medical. What it did was it provided, uh, for hospitals within the regulatory compliance space. We had at my time when I, before I sold the company, over 3,000 hospitals across the United States. And we had many other clients in different healthcare sub-verticals as well, such as long-term care, nursing homes, hospices, home health, et cetera. Um, it was in health always because, not because I had a background in health, it was because I was passionate about impacting people's health and making them healthy. And that idea or the nucleus for that idea came just before I founded that company uh, 17 and a half years before the exit in 2018. So just before the founding of the company, um, that was a chapter of my life where I was looking probably a combination of repentance of feeling like maybe I wasn't doing the most positive thing uh, in my life at that time. And I wanted to do good. And also like a deep yearning to do something productive or positive that would help other people with my life. Um, so that theme of healthcare was born at that time. And that's why we always focused the tech company that I had. I mean, we had offers over the years to move into different verticals, but I never deviated because the mission was healthcare um, along the way. And, and just for clarification, because right when you had uh, caught everything, there was at the very beginning, you said, what, what exactly was the business doing for the hospitals? Because it would just add a little bleep out of it. So not a big deal. Sure, sure. Uh, so so what, what the software business did in healthcare was we had several data management software solutions that managed data and documentation uh, within the hospital. It was mainly non-clinical documents that it, it managed. So the main flagship product, it would manage this document called the policy and the procedures within the hospitals. Oh, so everything from like, uh, how do you clean a scalpel after surgery to how do you properly and safely um, mop the uh, hallway in the foyer of the hospital so somebody doesn't slip and fall 
So all of those, you know, boring documents, if you will, mm -hmm. um, they're all they're all tied to uh, standards and regulations in the United States that say exactly here's what you need to follow hospital. If not, you could have a really bad outcome. A bad outcome could be uh, litigation. It could be a lawsuit um, or it could be your loss of accreditation status, which would mean that you would be reimbursed less per patient. Mm -hmm. So what, what I want to kind of, maybe I can kind of set the stage here aside, because I think what's super interesting about your story is that, you know, I've had so many people on the show where like, just they sacrifice all things personal to grow their business. And then they sell it and they're like, wait a second, it's not all about the money or the vice versa. Someone that wants to give, 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 and they might, you know, they're always having to grab capital from other people. And so we, I've been spending a lot of time over the years on conscious capitalism and, you know, really aligning impact in the world with creating valuable business. And truly, when someone has a clear vision of what they want, growing value to make the biggest amount of impact makes like, I mean, it's a recipe for amazing success, you know, but the challenge in that, in that equation is people might not necessarily have a good vision of the impact that they want to make. They know how to make profits, but they don't know how to make a good impact or don't have the, they haven't found their passion or purpose, right? Or they have a passion or purpose with the business, but they don't know how to monetize and grow value in light of that passion and purpose. And from the stories that I've heard, you you did both. And it was interesting on, you know, how you found your purpose, right? You I mean, you just, you just said that you scaled and grew and sold of a company that managed boring documents, right? Like you probably didn't wake up one day and say, yes, I'm going to do that, right? You probably... You know, you you had some very significant events along the way. Maybe talk about your. It was it ten months that you took off as a as a retreat. I mean, you had the, like when you said that you kind of went and you had this soul searching. Why did you do that, and what did you come out of that, and what would you, you know, just kind of given your overall perspective of that for you know the high pace entrepreneurs today that are you know might not necessarily have that clear of a vision that you got. You know, I think I think it's. Uh... I will agree with you. It's it's clear. It's it's it's. I would be open to acknowledge that growing up as a as a boy in Toronto, I didn't dream of starting a healthcare regulatory compliance company. <laughs> right. I mean, I was you know I grew up idolizing Michael Jordan and the '90s Bulls. I was convinced I was going to the NBA until I stopped growing in high school, and then I got injured. Right. And then I knew that that that's probably not going to happen. Uh, so I mean, it was it wasn't a childhood dream, but what led to me taking the time off to figure out what I wanted to do and to get the idea for the tech company starts a little bit further back in my 20s, where I entered into a dark period in my life. I call it, I call it the pit, right? So, I mean, I, you know, pretty conservative family, great upbringing. Uh, you know, my mom, who was my mom and dad and everything else for us because it was a single parent. Uh, household, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I have four kids and my wife and I, it's like, sometimes it seems so overwhelming with four kids. But then I think back uh, of my mom, how she took care of the five of us because she had five of us and just her. I think, okay, I don't have that much to complain about. But, <laughs> but um, perspective, yeah, respect. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, but after high school and entering into, you know, what we call university here in, in Canada, um, I ended up thinking of ways to pay for my tuition. That's really how it started. And what I decided to do was, and this is all related to your question. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. yeah, so what, what, what I decided to do was to pursue my love of music and become a DJ. So that's, that's what I did to start paying my tuition, paying my bills. And it was much more lucrative for me to do that than get a regular job that my friends had. So when I say DJ, I mean, I'm older now, so I don't know what the young DJs do, but I had a mixer, I had two turntables, I had vinyl records, like that's, that's what it was. And that's what I played at the parties and the clubs and everything else. But that entrepreneurial spirit that my mom breathed into me when I was 12 with that basketball league was still in me. And then after a while DJing, at the end of every night, I would get paid well, but the guy that would pay me, he called himself an event promoter or an event planner, whatever it was. And he had all the money and he would pay me a portion of it as, as a DJ. So I thought to myself, I, I need to become the event planner. So I, so I did that. I became the event planner. And then I found all these little loopholes to get uh, space for free 
Brown University was if you ran a student organization, you could actually rent uh, the nightclub on campus because there was an actual nightclub on campus uh, for free. So I started a student organization. I didn't, I didn't start a student organization. I found a student organization uh, because my parents are originally from a little country in South America called Guyana. It used to be called British Guyana. Um, and there was a small little student organization, cultural organization that centered around students that had a Guyanese heritage. No way. So I joined that. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I joined that. I became the president of that. And then within, within that first year, I started throwing parties that were under the name of that organization. And I got the club for free. And the parties started to become really, really large because I used, you know, I was a DJ. So I knew all the other hot DJs, they're the ones who brought the crowd. And those parties ended up becoming so, so huge. Like we had 2,500 to 3,000 people that would show up at the parties and all this other stuff that um, I remember the university uh, coming to me before the end of the academic year. And they said, you know what, we have something in the Senate policy that says that student organizations are only allowed to keep key count. Uh, And we were making a lot of money. So I said, really? I'm like, what happens with the balance of the money? They said, oh, you just give it to the university. So in my mind, I thought that's never going to happen. Uh, so we created we created scholarships for anybody that wanted to be part of the student organization. Uh, we took people to different cities to party. We went to ski trips, right? We, we found ways to spend the money to leave the minimum in the bank account. Um, and, <laughs> that's awesome. And, and, yeah, but you're going to force me to spend the money. I will find ways to do it. What ended up happening was the student club became so popular, which led to the parties becoming so huge that the university uh, required me to hire a security firm to secure the parties, to make sure the crowd was under control and all that stuff. And then, you know, I had one of those, I thought I could do better moments. At the end of the night, one night, um, my head of security, the guy that had the security firm, we were in the kitchen of the nightclub at the university on campus and we're in the kitchen because that's where all the cash is counted and as the manager of the club is counting the cash i'm watching and you know and she gives me my portion so the head of security tells me he's like you know you could be making even more money than this i said how do i do that he said you should just open your own nightclub and he planted that seed and later that year i ended up finding this abandoned bar in downtown Toronto that was just abandoned at that point. I took it over. I got some investment money together. And, you know, one of the, one of the differentiating competitive factors that we had at that time was we built this huge rooftop patio um, that not a lot of other clubs had in Toronto at that time. And that was a big draw. And that was my foray into the nightclub world. And I thought it was going to be fun because, you know, I'm a guy in my 20s. I got my own nightclub. There's music. There are there's lots of other things uh, for me <laughs> yeah, to enjoy myself. Your and, the and, exactly. Um, but but actually, I, I was about to go to to places that I, I wasn't even expecting to go, and and that's where I started moving. Period of my life that that I would call the pit. And I actually think that you know a lot of us you know a lot of us probably think back like we, we all have these pits in our life. It's a matter of like can we see the clues to get out of it? So when you let you can, yeah, I think a lot of us you know, can use our imagination in whatever you're willing to share is like when you were in this pit, what happened that gave you the aha and how did you get out of it? How did you get unstuck or unfrozen from this time to then go into the next stage where you ended up and you can kind of share more about your retreat. Cause I think it's interesting. Cause I think a lot of people could benefit from that, but what happened and then how did you, like, what were some of the ways that you, that you climbed out of it? Yeah. I mean, things started to happen over the years as I owned those clubs. And uh, what, what ended up happening was it became more than just about the music and the operations of the club. There was an element within the city and I, it, it exists in, in most major cities, sort of an underworld element that moves through that world that, you know, they sell things in that world and everything else. And that element was around me quite a bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and increasingly like, I didn't want to be around that at all. Like it was just, 
it was just bad vibes. It, w- it wasn't really me, but you know, I could have said all of that. But then, as a as a young guy, you know, and most of my friends are are you know working at the local blockbuster while they're in school or whatever it was back then, and I'm making like fifty to seventy five thousand dollars a weekend. <laughs> it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to be like, oh well, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like I really needed, I needed some kind of like signal to 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 leave. And then there was there was the f- the first time, one time when there was a case of mistaken identity with somebody moving around the city saying that they were me. That person wasn't behaving the the best and mistreated somebody, right? Um, now that somebody was the sister of a club owner who was connected to the underworld. Um, and that club owner came to my club looking for retribution to what had happened to his sister. Oh, geez. Um, and, uh, and that's, that was the first time I got a gun pulled on me. Um, and, and he was him and, and his, his entourage, like they were, they were about to pull the trigger on one particular night. Like I literally had a gun pressed up against my mouth. Um, but luckily his sister was in the hallway and she came in, you know, and she saw that I wasn't the guy that that she had the issue with. Right. Um, and that was really like, that world is really, I would say as close to a jungle as you can imagine, because it went from that moment I'm describing to when they all realize I'm not the guy, the guns put away, us sitting down, figuring out what has to happen, who it was and and they left. Um, but that was when that, after that happened, I thought to myself, I need to get the hell out of this place. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing here. And then two things ended up happening. One was one night I was in the club and I was, I was walking through the club. I kept on hearing my name called out over and over again. And I looked over and there was a younger guy calling my name. And, and luckily, like I, I heard and saw him because it was the lights were a little bit higher, uh, brighter, and the, the speakers were a little bit lower. The sound was a bit lower. So I called him over and I recognized him. He used to be one of the younger kids that I used to teach basketball to. I used to coach basketball at the at the at the and the the league, by the way, was yeah, yeah. at at was at the mosque that my grandfather had built in in Toronto, which was one of the first mosques in in, in Toronto. Super cool. He came over, and he just said to me, "He's like, you know," and and he was he was drunk, he was high, everything else, and he just said to me, "He's like, yo, man." do you remember me? And I said, yeah, I, rem- I remember you. And, and then he said a couple of sentences. That was the first signal for me to leave. Like it was the first push out of that world. And you used to be my basketball coach. I said, yeah, I remember. And he said, we all think you're the man. And he just stumbled off and left. Mm-hmm. Now to decode for your listeners, when he says, we all think you're the man, we is, it's all the kids in the neighborhood that I'm from. And when he says the man, they are now looking up to me at that point in my life because I'm living this Tony Montana Scarface kind of life um, that, <laughs> yeah. that they're, that they're looking up to. And I felt such shame. Like I felt, and, and, you know, I mean, I'm not a therapist or anything else. And maybe some people listening to this would be like, you know, what I'm about to say to like, you know, I disagree with what this guy said, but you know what? I think shame is it as fuel, right? Like I felt ashamed of what I was doing in my life at that point. And I thought to myself, do I want to be the basketball coach guy or do I want to be the Tony Montana guy? Right. And my heart said basketball coach guy. And that shame was like the, the first fuel to start moving along and, and, and getting out of there. And then a couple months later, the second thing happened. And that's when I said, okay, that's it. I'm out. Right. And, um, and, and this, the second thing that happened was uh, my father who, you know, I didn't grow up with him, right? I mean, we, I, I was away from him my, my whole life. But one night at the club, the head of security, he radios in, we all wore these little earpieces in our ears. He, uh, he radioed to me and he said, he's like, Saad, there's an older gentleman at the front door with some of his older friends. And he says, he's your dad. And I, I just radioed back. I'm like, I'm like, no, whoever it is, he's lying because my dad doesn't even live in Canada. And the guy said, my security guy said, no, no, it's pretty sure it's your dad. He looks just like you. So I went down to the door and there was my father, right? Uh, with some of his friends and he was dressed in a nice suit. And, and he said that, hey, you know what? He just wants to hear it. I had a club. He's in town and he wants to come in and, and see what I'm up to. So 
So I brought him inside, sat him down. I told the waitress to take care of him and his friends. And then I, I told him I'll be back at the end of the night and we can talk. A couple of minutes after I leave him, all the lights in the club go on. All these police officers start streaming into the club. Oh, man. And, and they ended up um, finding me and giving me a ticket for uh, overcapacity. So they, they had it out for some people that had become involved with the club. Yeah, and they were trying their desires, right? <laughs> <they> exactly. Got... <laughs> yeah. So, so it was, it was a, it was like a ticket, and the penalty was, you know, they brought in all these police officers, and they had these paddy wagons in the back, and they confiscated all of the inventory, all of the alcohol from the club. They didn't arrest anybody, and they said, "You can go about your business. We're just going to confiscate all the alcohol. You can serve water and coke and whatever else you want." But obviously, you know, if there's no alcohol being served everyone's going to leave the club. And then my father found me in my office after the cops had left. And he just said, he just said a line to me, right? And this is a, this is a man that I didn't really grow up with at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but he said to me, he said, son, this is no life for somebody like you, right? And I didn't actually take that as a judgmental comment or anything else. Like, when he said somebody like you, so he knew that I wanted a low-key, quiet kind of family life. Like, I don't want to be in the spotlight. And this is that life was exactly what it was. Um, it might have been a good life for somebody like him, actually, right? But not for somebody like me. And that was it. And I took that as like a sign to like, okay, kid from my past coming by a few months ago, my dad showing up now. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. I gotta, I gotta leave. I gotta get out of this thing. Um, and then I made, I made moves to, to finally leave, leave that, leave that world. And you didn't make any kind of minor moves. I mean, you took a, a pretty solid sabbatical, didn't you? And like, maybe kind of, and this is super helpful. So, because I, I, what I want the listeners to take away from this is that everybody that's listening has some crazy things that they've, that, that have led them to start their business, grow their business. But I think what's, you know, interesting about your situation is you had this, you know, this transition period that got you really clear on why you ended up getting the healthcare compliance and like how you ended up aligning a lot of the, the bigger impacts that you want to make with the, um, the business and your life. I mean, so explain like how you got that clarity and, you know, honestly, what, what you've done over the years to keep that clarity. Cause I think, you know, you can have, you know, the, the summer camp high, but then, you know, making sure that you're always staying true to it as a different, different kind of discipline. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking back, like what I would, what I did differently perhaps is what I call to myself, owning your exit. When I was in that pit, I actually decided proactively that, you know what, this could end a few different ways. Like I could get shot one night and it would be over. I could continue to meander down the road, getting more involved in the underworld. I could end up in prison or I could stay out of all, both of those two outcomes, run clubs and live a wealthy, lonely, pathetic life. Like that's, I just, I, I, I just thought that through to myself, right? For me personally, knowing, knowing, knowing my own character. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to own my exit. I'm going to proactively change. I'm not going to wait for something drastic or dramatic to happen. And I see this in my life, you know, I mean, all of us do, right? And I mean, we right. meet people and, and maybe some people listening to this, they've, they've had an illness and then they decided to change. They right. lost a loved one and then they decided to change. They were they hit bankruptcy. Then they decided to change. I thought, you know what? I'm going to own my exit. I'm going out on what everyone thinks is a high, but I know is a pit. Um, so once I decided to own my exit, I actually, I actually went to the, to the essentially criminal element that protected my club, right? Um, and I, I told them that I was leaving. In a way, it was also seeking their permission to leave because I was a critical figure for that operation. And, and I actually took my, you know, we call it a stash. It's like a, you know, your savings, right? Like there's, when you're in that world, there's no credit. You don't have credit cards. You know, all you have is cash, cash <laughs> and lots yeah. of cash, right? So I took all the cash I had and I gave it to them. And I said, here, I want you to keep this, but I'm going to leave. And the reason I did that was because I knew that somebody in the organization might come looking for that cash one day. So by them knowing that I have nothing, pretty much 
then, uh, you know, they, they, they leave me alone. So I left. And the only place I could go was back to my mom's house, right? Because I didn't have my fancy sports cars after a while. I didn't have my rooftop penthouse condo, right? I went back to my mom's house in a place called Scarborough, which is a suburb of Toronto. And I was in the basement. And I was like, okay, where do I go from here? And, and my mom always has a saying. She said, uh, she always says, people always go back to how they were brought up, right? So, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I've, I've seen it to be true more than, more, more than not in, in my life, right? So what I decided to do my first week back in my mom's house was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the mosque, the same mosque where I taught basketball, right? Um, I didn't only just teach basketball and run that league. Like that mosque, when it was being built, when I started the basketball league, it, it just had a warehouse. Like I'm the one that painted the lines on the ground and everything else for the court. Right. So yeah. I went back to the mosque on a Friday. Right. And, and for those that that don't know, like, just like how, like, let's say Christians would go to church on, on Sunday, uh, Muslims go to mosque on Friday. Right. So I went to the prayers, congregational prayers on Friday and I was in the parking lot um, and I was, I was driving a 1988 Chevrolet Celebrity that had Ooh. almost 300,000 kilometers on it, right? <laughs> um, that my uncle was going to throw away, but I asked him if I could have it because I didn't have I didn't have any money. I didn't. I just I needed something to get around. So I got out of the car and walked into the doors of the mosque, and then a few older uh, community members came up to me and kind of like stood in front of me, and they proceeded to tell me what a bad example I had set for oh, no. the younger youth. Right. What a bad uh, how ashamed they were of me of because they've they've heard. Of, how old were you at this point? Uh, it's probably like 24, 25 around there. Mm-hmm. OK. Right. And um, so I didn't go in. I, I just listened to them. I didn't say anything. Right. Because out of respect and and also they weren't saying anything that was untrue. And I didn't actually go into the mosque. I just turned around hopped back into my Chevrolet celebrity and, and went back home. But later that night, I went back to the mosque and then I waited until all of the people looked like they had left from the night prayer, like the last prayer of the day. And I went into the mosque. I found a caretaker who I'd grown up with. Like I knew that guy since I was a little kid. And I said, would you mind if I stayed in here tonight? Uh, And when you come back, when you lock up, I'll stay here. And when you come back in the morning and open up for the morning prayer, I'm going to leave before everybody comes to pray, right? And I said, I don't want to pray. I'm going to do anything. I just want to sit in the mosque. So he let me do that. And I sat there and I didn't pray. I didn't do anything. I just sat in a big open carpeted area. And then this like this language came to my heart. I kept on just like through my heart, not through audibly through my words, right? Um, or orally, orally through my words. I kept on saying the path of excellence I'm supposed to take in order to be of service to others. I kept on saying, show me the path of excellence I'm supposed to take in order to be of service to others. Awesome. Because I've always had this, this belief that all of us were supposed to be really, really great at at least one thing. Right. So I thought to myself, like, come on, God, like, show me the one thing I'm supposed to do. Give me a second chance. What's it going to be, right? Um, and I, I did that all night. And then I left in the morning when the caretaker came. And then I went back the following night. And then I went back the following night. And I did that for 10 months. Um, I kept on going back every single night for 10 months. And somewhere around month three, the communication started to be two-way, right? And sort of me just asking for the path of excellence, I started to get this feeling or idea or communication that, okay, if you're going to have a second chance, it should be in healthcare, right? You should try to impact people's health. And at, at, at month 10, you know, I, I felt like I got the message and I just went back out into the world, kind of eyes and ears open, looking for any clues that would be healthcare related. Like I could have become a personal trainer I could have tried to become a doctor, a nutritionist, a gym owner, like any of these things, right? But the cookie crumb of things that led to me founding the tech company, 
had me get had me get involved in in healthcare technology. So, so like when you're what I find interesting is you're listening and like in you know you unfroze yourself and you you owned your exit in what is it like, how did you go about that listening? Right. Cause I think, especially entrepreneurs, I think in our DNA, we want to will our way into engineering our outcome before we even know exactly what we want. <laughs> and so like, there's this, and it's funny cause a lot of the people that are on my show, they, they end up after with a huge plot of pot of money, not knowing what to do or why they were on that journey. So you, you actually went about this the right way. I mean, near death experience, uh, nonetheless, but you actually, you know, went through this listening phase. I'm curious, like what, any, any advice to people as they're, you know, in this listening phase of their life? I mean, you know, and how did you, what are some of the things that worked as you were exploring what you wanted to do? And then how did you decide to land on where you, where you got with the business? Great, great, great question. I actually think it's, I like that you use the word listening because for entrepreneurs, what I wouldn't say they, because I'm an entrepreneur, what we do too often is we consume too much information (laughs) and try to listen to everyone else other than ourselves. That's the problem. We're listening to the wrong voice. I think that all the information we take in is great. Like if you listen to this podcast, great. Listen to an audiobook, that's great. Read a book, go to a seminar, go to a conference, all good. However, you know, you've you've got to critically think uh, and filter in what you believe and what you don't. But what's really important is you need to make like not you need to, but what worked for me is I made time and I continue to make time to listen to my voice. And I use a few different practices to connect to my actual voice to see what it is I actually think and what it is I actually feel and believe. Um, Because too often, if you don't have that rigor and discipline, and, and make no mistake, it takes rigor and discipline to get to that place to hear yourself. Like it's not a, can't just go on a light little hike and all of a sudden you'll hear yourself. Like there's rigor and discipline to, reliably, accurately, and consistently um, connect to that voice. Because what happens if you don't is we think we are thinking and we think we are having ideas, but we're not. We are simply regurgitating information that's coming from other people, from other sources, right? That's, or that's erroneously making us believe that these are our thoughts. So I think it's a matter of connecting and listening to yourself. Um, and yes, like that time, the 10 months, like was like a very deep way to do that, but you don't need to do something that drastic. I mean, since I did that, I don't do that. I don't go away for 10 months every five years or something like that. Like it's like, I've never done that again. However, I've adopted different little mini practices throughout mm-hmm. my life that work for me. Um, and, and you know what I, I mean, I'm not very, Really public about it, but I, I coach and mentor uh, a bunch of, of entrepreneurs. And most of the, if there's a secret sauce or differentiator with what I do in terms of how they make gains in their businesses and lives and everything else is encouraging them to adopt practices so they can hear their own voice. Um, because once they start listening to their own voice, they don't need me. They don't need me as a coach or an advisor or mentor or anything else anymore. They're, they, they can go from there. You know, it's so interesting, Saad, is like, I, I think, you know, in today's world where we, we do consume, 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 and I am like, I'm majorly guilty of this, <laughs> but like, to your point about the balance and listening, I mean, some of my biggest ahas come while I'm running or while I'm doing things without like the, the, the medium of consumption, right? I'm not listening. I'm not doing anything besides just listening. And there's this level of clarity that comes from that. And I think about all the people that have been on my show that are uber successful and I wouldn't replace myself from them because of how lost they are, even though they might have a lot of money or perceived, you know, success. And I just like, I, I find this topic of what you have, you know, you solid, you built the solid foundation of clarity before building the business. And it's such a problem with people. They, and I don't know if you've seen this where you're like, as people get into that entrepreneurial journey, and I even said like it's a lot, it's an accident for a lot of people. They found a product pricing fit where there was a need in the market. They hit it and they rode this wave, never really understanding where the final 
end of that rainbow is going to be. <laughs> and so, yeah. I, I, you know, I just find it in like, and I don't know if you got any comments on that. I just find it interesting because of how lack of the lack of clarity so many people have of what the point is of what their journey is. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I think people consume too much, especially with social media and everything else. Right. So it's a comparison culture. It's, it's feeling like it's not, it's not enough. But I think that that rigor and discipline of doing the things that allow you to hear yourself is, is really, really important. I mean, I, you know, you don't have to meditate. I mean, even though I've, you it know, helps. I med- I've been meditating for a long time and, and within the entrepreneurial circles that I'm in, you know, I'm known as like the meditation entrepreneur guy to come to get advice. But a lot of times when people come to you, they're like, hey, okay, that form of meditation that you were doing at that conference or that I saw you do in that workshop, can you teach that to me? And I think the people that ask me that, they're often really surprised. I say, yeah, I can do that, but it's probably not the best for you. And they're like, oh, well, then what, what style should I do? Because in the Western world, a lot of people will go and find a teacher in their local city and feel like they have to sit on a cushion and everything else. But the most powerful form of hearing your voice, in my opinion, is if you were to do a simple exercise, if you're to think back to when you're in the sixth grade, around 12 years old or so, right? 11, 12 years old. What was the activity that you did that brought you an immense amount of joy and that allowed you to lose track of time? For me, it was shooting free throws. Hmm. So my most powerful form of meditation, and you know, I live in a, I live in a suburb in a neighborhood here in Toronto, and I'm sure, especially during this pandemic COVID-19 times, everybody's working from home. I'm sure my neighbors look outside in the middle of the day and they're wondering, why is this grown man shooting free throws, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but, but I shoot a lot of free throws every day because it's like, you know, after I, after I work on something, after I write something, do some work, like I need that rhythm of disconnecting, seeing how I feel about that, what I think about that, and shooting free throws is immense amount of joy, allows me to lose, lose track in time. Um, somebody else, it might be playing like a certain video game. It might be surfing. It might be running like it's, you know, but I think that that 12 year old exercise um, will allow you to, to get in touch with your voice and then move you towards owning your next exit. Well, and, and it's interesting because you're really getting that state of flow. And I've brought this up on the show, the, the, the Mihai, Mihai can checks me high who talks about, I mean, when time dissipates, I mean, you're actual, the, the, the neural activity in your brain is connecting at different levels. So you're truly not only listening, but like tapping into some of the subconscious thoughts of what you've, you know, cause you can't just consume, right? Like, like you said, otherwise you're not going to be able to get to that point of what do you do with that information? And as you experience that, so like, how did you, in, cause I know we're going to do a part two of this interview of what you did with the business to accelerate your vision, but like, maybe we can get the kind of the dots connected to the point where you felt confident with where you wanted to go. Cause I think, you know, and from my own perspective, once you have clarity in this big picture, and this is kind of my own philosophies, but like the big picture gives me peace of how I fit into that and allows me to take the punches every day, like COVID or whatever the thing is in 2020 that have thrown everybody through a loop. But like, because you have that big picture, it's like, you know, they, I've got, I've had people on the show talking about sailing analogies where once you know where you're going, you're going to have a lot of issues along the way. But like how, you know, explain that process to get to that point where you said, okay, here's what I'm going to do and why. Yeah, I think, well, the drive to do something in healthcare was so powerful that that's, that was my singular focus. And within a short amount of time, I ended up getting a job at a healthcare startup in Toronto. And then within my first few months there, I started seeing how lackluster that particular company was, which is no longer a business, right? Um, mm-hmm. But that's where I got the idea for the company that I started. And I just kept on following it like one little mini step to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, and then even, you know, even when I dis- came up with the idea for the technology, there was another issue where I'm not an engineer. I'm not a developer, a coder, anything else like that, right? But you know, I talked my the my coworker at that time, which be, which became my co-founder for the company in the early years, who was a developer to, to join me, right? And it was one mini win at a time. But once the company got going, I had to I had to motivate myself somehow. 
And I found that money wasn't doing it. So I came up with this idea of a million patients. I wanted to impact on a daily basis, 1 million patients a day within all the hospitals that I hope that we would serve through our software. And that was, that was the thing that I tracked. And, you know, and, then, and then we got to a million, then I was like, what do we do now? Is it 10 million, right? And you kind of go and you go, you go from there. What's really interesting about that, and, and I think we'll dive into some of the tactical parts of this to get to that final second exit that you're talking about with from the healthcare company. But like any thought, any final thoughts on this section of like when you have the vision or the when you've listened to the voice of like where you what your big picture is, how that brings a little bit of clarity and confidence to those mini steps of like starting at that healthcare startup or you know, like identifying an opportunity in the marketplace because you have the big picture in mind, like how that, like, if you don't have that big picture, the clarity, how you might miss those mini steps. Yeah. I think for me, it's, I guess it's not so much like the big picture that I have in mind. It's more trust. Like I just, I just trust that I'm part of some, I'm a really small part of some bigger plan Mm -hmm. and I don't, I just don't fully know everything. And all I can do is try my best every day and move the ball forward in my own way. But even as I'm moving the ball forward, I also acknowledge that I probably don't know what I'm doing because I don't know what the big plan is. Anyways, I don't know what the big picture is because the picture is so big. I'm such a small part um, that I'll never really know. So it actually, it actually takes the emotional charge out of, out of everything. Like I actually don't take business and entrepreneurship that seriously. Um, you know, it's, it's what I do for work. It's part of my tripartite division of time each day, you know, sleep for eight hours, spend time with family, friends, read, meditate, shoot hoops, whatever for eight hours. And I work for eight hours. Right. So, yeah, I think it's more of like trusting that I'm part of the big picture. It's part of a bigger plan and I can just move things along, but to, to maybe close off this this dissection, when I feel like it's time to move on to something different or bigger, that's where, when I start feeling that, that's where it's time to own my exit. Cause that's, that's like the really important thing. And I think that, you know, probably in the next section that, that, that we do or the, or the part two, we might talk about the exit and the tech company, but the exit doesn't have to be that you know, in that way, right? Like somebody that wants to be a great dad and have a great nine to five job, and that's their dream, that could be an exit, right? Somebody that wants to be the manager of their local YMCA, like that could be an exit, right? I mean, earlier this year, I actually had the great opportunity to go to a maximum security prison just before COVID hit. Uh, and I actually got to teach inmates uh, meditation for an entire day. Oh, and and these this is Max and Super Max Prison, right? And uh, you know, if I give a shout out to the and, and and I'll give a shout out to two guys that 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 brought me there, Andre Norman and Eric Kerr. And the reason I shout them out is because this wasn't part of a big let's go to prison as a bunch of entrepreneurs hoopla thing and and post all over Facebook. This was part of an ongoing initiative and they say, Hey, we know you're into meditation. You want to come teach these inmates meditation for a day. And I spoke to guys there, 46 of them. They're all the gang leaders of that prison. And they're all trying to reform themselves in some way, shape or form. But these are guys that are confined inside of a small space all day long. And they are now developing an idea of owning their exit beyond the walls that they're in right and some of them are trying to figure out how they're going to exit while never leaving the walls right because they can never get out based on what they've done Mm -hmm. others know they'll be leaving at some point in the future right so they're trying to own their exit now right so when i when i look at men like that right which are some of these guys are just beautiful guys right just bad circumstances perhaps Mm -hmm. um you know and i and i look at the entrepreneurs that i know you know, there's a lot of lessons we can take from there. It's like these guys are proactively like working on their habits, their behavior, every their discipline, everything else to own their exit, right? And they're literally trapped inside. 
So, you know, what, what could we learn from that in terms of owning our exits? Yeah, it's yeah, not exactly. some made-up golden cage, which is our business often. It's like truly a physical barrier that they can't leave. And what's interesting, Saad, like you, you're you're tying together a lot of concepts, which gets me excited for part two of this, is that, you know, I, I in our teachings, uh, the educational teachings that we have, we talk about separating ownership from your role. Because a lot of people, when you talk about this feeling, when you feel like you want to change gears, many times the operational financial cage is impossible to leave without sacrificing value or the impact of the legacy. So like, you know, what, what I find interesting is that you talk about owning this exit, which is a lot about reinventing yourself and your identity, but also building enough infrastructure that you have the, the fluidity to change your role, maybe, you know, and, and do that in different timelines as your ownership, which is such a problem that there's people that have been on this show that uh, Mike Jack's Jackness um, actually said it where he said, like, the moment that I woke up and I felt like I didn't want to do this anymore, I felt like I had a noose around my neck and I couldn't get out. So he sold. And, like, I see that too many times where entrepreneurs sacrifice the legacy of their business, the impact, or the financial valuation because they, the feeling was so strong, but they hadn't built themselves something that they could pivot with. And so, like, I, and I think having the clarity of the, of the big picture, you know, big picture, whatever you want to call the big vision of the business over like the million cups or building a valuable business gives you the ability to have those choices. So you don't have to sacrifice things and, and, you know, going into it with eyes wide open is crucial. But, you know, if you, you know, you did that before you started the business, but I, I think what we can talk about too, is that you can do that while what you're talking about while you own your company. You don't have to just do something dramatic, right? You can do this exploration while you have the business, which should realign a lot of the strategies personally and professionally that you that you tie to it. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that too, where p- the people's anxiety of being trapped, whether it's a physical or mental, right? I mean, they just yep. they do dramatic things that you can't get back. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Maybe this is a good, a great place to close because I actually realized after I sold the business that the ingredients I was chasing in an exit, I had already achieved about three, four years before the exit. All the things I wanted, I had meaningful work, wife that loved me, kids. My office was 10, 15 minutes away from the home. It was a nice little separation to get over there. Um, I'm a longtime martial artist. So I built an actual dojo in the software company where I would train, I would train every day. I would have sparring partners show up, you know, like I, I created my own reality. It's like, I remember my employees, it's like, you know, I'd be showing up in a boardroom sweaty and a gi because I just finished, <laughs> I just finished scrapping with somebody in the dojo, right. Um, in the middle of the workday, then shower in the office and but right back to work. Like I had really like exited before I exited, right. Because I was so proactive about owning the exit, but I didn't really realize that until after I sold the business which I don't regret selling it, but, you know, sometimes I think like maybe entrepreneurs can ask themselves, Hmm, if I were to exit before I even exit and own that right now with my business, what would that actually look like? How would I run this? How would I paint this business in terms of a canvas? Right. Uh, you know, what would I do differently? Oh man, I, that is a perfect time to stop. Cause I am so excited. Cause you know, this con- this concept of your role exit slash transition versus ownership, which is your equity as an investor are just so different. And the better that people can understand both those scenarios and the fact that you have choices on both fronts just helps realign all the different strategies. So I'm, I'm super pumped. And I, I'll, as we wrap up here, thank you so much for sharing that. That's a long, it's a great story. Saad. And like, like you and I talked about, you know, too many people in today's world talk just tacticals, right? Like just the tactics or the tactical plans of like gross scale, you know, SEO or, or sales or revenue, but like, you know, having the full combination of building a valuable business that gives you choices and the why, because so many people, we need to talk about the why behind it. Cause it, it, it sheds so much light on the actual journey itself. Okay. Great. Great. I'm looking forward to part two. Um, best place to get in touch with you. And cause this will probably come out in two uh, sequential weeks, but the people that want to dive in and uh, find out more about you uh, because they can't wait for next week. What's the best place to get in touch, best place to get in touch with you. Uh, media place, LinkedIn. So at Saud Juman, S A U D J U M A N. And then my website, which is a triple W dot Saud 
Saad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Looking forward to next time. hope you enjoyed that episode. I hope you found a couple gold nuggets about some things that you're going to do to figure out what do you ultimately want from this business and how does it play a role in the things that you want out of life. The business is a vehicle to make an impact and to create wealth, but you have to understand what you're marching towards. It's not as easy as everybody thinks it's going to be. That's why we have a ton of exercise in the Intentional Growth course. If you need a little bit of kick in the butt in order to go do it or some actual physical exercises, go check it out. Otherwise, stay tuned to round two and episode two with Saad's story so that way you can understand how he built the business around his why. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.